Hello and welcome back to the show. Today we are talking to the big mountain skier Jakob Wester. It was so good to sit down with Jakob and we talked about everything skiing, backcountry, big mountain, park and ski cinematics. We covered topics such as his evolution from park competitions to big days in the backcountry, a typical day in a life as a professional skier and weighing up the avalanche risks on a daily basis, the toll of chasing snow throughout the winter and how he unwinds in the summer, are we in the midst of the death of the ski movie, why Norway should be on your ski bucket list, and so much more. It's an absolute corker. The astute amongst you will have noticed that we have a new name and new artwork. We've been putting some serious work into the show these past few weeks, and I cannot wait to share it with you all soon. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on anything. And if you feel inclined, drop a five-star review. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're fresh from Japan. I got a message from you at like 1 a.m. Been like, Justin, can you get some sleep? How was your time in Japan? It was great. Um... Great to be back in the land of the rising sun. Uh, been a few times, but it's been like probably four years since I was there last. And all the times I've gone before has been like uh, filming trips for big production companies or team trips with uh, like sponsors and stuff or even park competitions like way back. Uh, and I've always wanted to go back there for like vacation sort of just to go ski um especially my wife sophia uh, has never been she she really wanted to go um so it was kind of like her idea so let's make a japan trip happen not like put too much uh work obligations on on top of everything and just go experience the amazing powder snow and it was uh it's good it's really good for someone who doesn't know why japan is so special because you hear whispers oh i'm off to japan japan you know for someone who doesn't really know the internet's of skiing, why is Japan so special? I mean, number one reason is the snow. Uh, Japan gets 8 to 12 meters of snow every year, which is insane. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure about the numbers, but I think the Alps get typically like 3 to 4 meters or something like that. Uh, and the snow is incredibly dry and, and soft. Like when they... They have the perfect conditions for what's called the stellar dendrites, which is the typical classic snowflake, the snow crystal with the long arms that look like little pine trees. And they get so long that when they cluster together and they fall, it just builds up really quickly uh, and gets super deep and incredibly light. It's like that lighter than air feeling where you drop into something that oh, it looks like powder, you know, like, oh, it's going to be like a powder run, but you don't even feel the snow. Like, it's so strange. I don't know many places in the world that get like that. And it has to do with combinations of perfect temperatures and uh, humidity high up, high up in the air and then pretty dry where it lands. So North America is somewhat similar. Uh, it's champagne powder, whatever. And uh, yeah, Japan gets that and they get heaps of it too. So uh, the mountains themselves are not that uh, spectacular. They have pretty low... Uh, Low, small mountains and, and uh, a lot of trees, not much high alpine, which doesn't matter when you go there because even if you only get like a few hundred vertical meters in a run, it's so good. And yeah, great lift access, wonderful culture, polite, friendly. Yeah, it's a must-go trip for uh, anyone who, want, who likes skiing powder. 
What was a typical day then when you're in Japan? Obviously, you said you wanted to limit work commitments, ski as much as you can. What time are you sort of getting up and out there? And then what time are you heading back in? It was pretty relaxed schedule. Uh, we based our skiing around some of the more popular resorts and we'd go to like a few lesser known mountains as well. But the lifts, you know, the lifts start running at 8.30, 9.00. So it's pretty chill compared to uh, a lot of the schedules that we're used to. And we did some ski touring. Even if you do walk up mountains there, uh, they're really small, like two to three hours maximum in the skin track. Um, and then we'd obviously do some filming and photography as well. So we do like find zones where you could do a couple laps, uh, get a couple turns in. Um, but yeah. Mostly was... using the lifts then, or were you touring? Yeah, i say it was about 50-50. This trip was kind of, it wasn't the typical... Like if it snows constantly, like I've been there before when it just, you don't see the sun for 14 days and it just snows, uh, <laughs> it snows like half a meter a day. And then you'd, you'd be fine just riding the lifts because it's going to be plenty of snow going around. But this time we had like only two proper dumps and then we had like a few sunny days in between, which is super nice too, to get out uh, in the sun and actually see something and get up high. So those days went ski touring, but on the days that was snowing, uh, I think we had four or five days where it was like sort of snowing or snowing heavily. Then we skied the lifts and just lapped the trees. It's funny, like you can just ride a piece and, and just dip off into like a gully or something and get amazing skiing. And then it's usually like not much bushwhacking to get back to the to the lift. So that was great. Uh, yeah, pretty relaxed schedule. If we go back in time for you, you grew up competing on the park. And then you've kind of transitioned over to the big mountain side. You've said that the park's a young man's game, but from an industry point of view, is there more recent emphasis on the big mountain as the equipment's got there? Or is it just from a cinematic point of view that the cameras are better? Because it seems now if you go much into skiing, certainly from a new point of view, everything's all about the big mountain. I mean, how far back do you want to go? I grew up as a ski racer, actually, because I'm so old that... Um freestyle skiing the way we know it today didn't really exist back then it was if you wanted to go freestyle skiing you'd be riding the moguls or you'd look like i mean that was already kind of dead by then but like traditional aerials no poles just those big ramps uh so i, I did ski racing growing up at a young age which i'm really grateful for now because it taught me like really good uh, basics and uh, just the technique um, but yeah, got into park as soon as that was a thing, basically, as soon as skiers were allowed in the snowboard parks uh, <laughs> and figured out pretty quickly that I was really into jumping. I've always been like jumping off of things, even since I could like barely walk. I wanted to like jump off of things and find ways to find trampolines or jumping off cliffs into water. And so it was just natural for me to want to jump on skis. So uh, yeah, I did racing, but I would like every second lap i would just go like find a jump somewhere and after a while i realized like that was my jam uh so i got into the contest circuit 12 13 and yeah basically did that at a pretty high level until 2014 was probably the year that i retired and i could definitely tell like it was a smaller scene like 10 years ago uh there were fewer sponsored athletes on the world tour or like it wasn't even the world tour back then it was the us open the x games world skiing invitationals different invitational contests like unals and invitational and uh so and since it didn't have that like 
World Cup, like nation-based uh, ski team kind of thing going on. It was really loose. We were just kind of one big family where everyone skied together, traveled together, went to the same contests. And dare I say, we were definitely feeling a little like there was definitely a rock star vibe around the whole uh, park program back then where results in the end weren't only thing that mattered. Like there were a lot of parties and just a really fun lifestyle. So I think the media that came out of that um, reflected that in a really cool way. Like you skiers had their, their segments in movies, but they could be like half, half of the segment could be competition footage uh, or, or park dedicated park uh, sessions in the, in the spring where they would build these massive jumps, quarter pipes. Uh, yeah. So I feel like in a way, the organizational part of the con the contest scene where uh, the Olympics got involved and national teams kind of like built the structure around contests like the World Cup and everything. It definitely killed that a little bit. And I think it made maybe the footage a little, I mean, more saturated, more skiers doing the same contest runs every week. And as you say, the advent of drones and affordable cinematic cameras that anyone can bring out into into the backcountry it definitely made it easier for smaller production teams to uh interesting backcountry segments but the drones probably is the biggest biggest change there like really made it so much easier to document what we do in in the mountains uh, without having to rely on expensive helicopters or to get a filmer to sit all across the valley on top of a different peak just to get like the, the big angles. Yeah, it definitely feels like there's a bigger focus on backcountry now. But it's always been the thing too, like for all park athletes that they've been, that you notice towards a certain part of your career that while well, your body starts breaking down or you maybe you're not like content with only doing contests. We were always looking up to the big mountain athletes back then. And like, that's kind of like the end uh, stop for your skiing, that you have to take your tricks into the backcountry or learn how to ski bigger lines. Most people take that trajectory. You've been cross-country skiing since you were two, and then I think skiing yeah. since you were four. You must have such a toll on your body. How do you sort of mitigate all of that? Or is it just accumulation uh, over the years? Well, you don't mitigate it. You just learn where your limits are and you figure out where where you can ski with more longevity. Uh, these days, if I hit a park jump, like I make sure it's perfectly built. Uh, most likely it's going to be towards the end of the season when there's slush, like soft snow in the landing. <laughs> I'm not going to go ski like a park in January in the shade with icy landings, just because I know it's not going to be worth it for me. Like I'm probably going to have to take a few days off. Landing in powder definitely helps. Uh, and just picking the moments that, you know, it's going to count, like instead of going out, hitting every cliff I see, I might wait until I find like a really good feature to, that you can film on there where I can get shots for a movie part where I just know it's going to be like really good. Like Japan was perfect. Like it's the snow so soft, like you can jump off of anything and you'd be fine. I've had yeah. a lot of injuries, but like not, not close to, uh, many others. I mean. I, everyone that I know have like blown blown out knees or yeah broken backs and stuff and been 
lucky, knock on wood. <laughs> Do you ever get tired of constantly filming? Because your job's so associated with the visuals that you put out. Do you ever think, oh man, can we just like ditch the drone and just go skiing today? Oh, yeah, for sure. You do have those days where it feels like all you do is just like looking for angles and hunting like the next cool clip. But at the end of the day, that's that's kind of what supports my skiing. And in a way, it feels like if I'm going to go out and ski something, like, don't get me wrong, I love going skiing sometimes just off camera with just friends. And But then I'd almost rather go either skiing a resort just lapping a lift or go on like a big backcountry adventure to ski something really like steep and gnarly but that i know doesn't film well i think my skiing comes across the best when when there's really like perfect snow the line is i mean gnarly cool looking but you can still ski it in style and, and fast that's the my favorite kind of footage like i don't care so much for for getting uh video of me like jump turning above a massive cliff uh or down a steep north face that's fun though like it's a great adventure but i'd rather just do that with friends and maybe a gopro just to document there's still like a love for documenting too like i notice with so many years of skiing now if i don't like take some photos or film what i do i'll forget about it like i'll even <laughs> sometimes like i see old phone shots from like friends and stuff i'm like can't even remember skiing that <laughs> but the <laughs> days that we have like actually produced something that those are those are uh kept forever those memories and it it, it also kind of hurts when you do ski something that you know would look great on camera and you put some work in there and you're like ah we should have uh we should have filmed that if it's on the internet didn't happen did it happen you know <laughs> <laughs> how do the the uh, the sponsorship in skiing work because there's no teams. As come, we're talking come from a cycling background. It's all teams. You have no personal or little to no personal sponsors. Whereas in skiing, it's like all personal sponsors. Really, how does it work? What's the system like? I think there's just as many systems as there are skiers. Uh, I've only worked with a handful of sponsors in my career. I've been quite loyal to. Uh, or just been lucky to have like really good relationships with my sponsors. So I was like starting uh, in the in my park career. I was riding for the same sponsors for almost my entire career, which was uh, Oakley and Armada back then. Back then, I was still there's there are teams, but they're just not the national team sponsored by like oil companies and, and cars and stuff which happens in racing, I know. Uh, there are definitely some brands that have a tighter knit team, more of a family feel, and some that are just like really spread out and have like this huge umbrella of different skiers that you don't really meet unless you're on a R&D trip to the headquarters or like, yeah, the yearly meetup. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm with Ross and Yol, they have a huge team, everything from cross-country skiers to racers to biathlon athletes and then park and, and backcountry freestyle and big mountain uh and i know most of the freestyle part the freestyle crew and the the backcountry stuff but we don't like really go on trips together uh much as much as i want i would want to it would be more it'd be fun if they 
wanted to make like a team movie or something. Some some uh, brands do that, which is really cool. But we are in the midst of the death of the ski movie, so <laughs> I don't know. Why do you think that is? Well, social media, really. I think 10 years ago, you'd, you'd wait around to see what your favorite pros had gone up to, like had gotten up to uh, throughout the year. You'd, you'd maybe like hear some whispers or saw a photo in a magazine or something, but then you wouldn't see the actual footage until the fall in the big screen, in the big productions. Then uh, came Instagram and, and Facebook and all that. And I don't really have like a strong opinion about it. Like, I think you just have to kind of go with the flow there. Uh, I I really like seeing like uh, this like constant flow of footage coming out, but in a way I know I do understand people that think it's desensitizing and it just kind of gets you don't get those immortal parts anymore because you've already seen it. And even if people save their footage for a big like uh, a production like a segment in a big movie, you've already seen like the behind the scenes shots from that day. You've seen someone uh, shot it. Yeah, yeah cell phone shot of the the run or maybe even just a photo of the tracks and if i see like sammy carlson posts a photo of the tracks at the end of the day i can look at that photo and be like yeah no he definitely did a three off that cliff and like a seven off that roller at the end and i know his style so in a way that's like oh, i've already seen it but that's what happens i mean you gotta like uh get these like 15 minute of fame bubbles throughout the season get these like little viral clips out there um, to stay relevant. And your aim is to get as many of those little bubbles that just pop throughout the winter. That, which is why I try to at least produce like one proper edit or film each winter, just to have something in the, in the immortal bank because the, the social media stuff just kind of, no one remembers it after a while. Do you find skiers or even yourself pushing bigger lines just for the 15, 20 second Instagram reel. They're all just pretty much the same because some of the avalanche clips you put out, like they get, they obviously garner like loads and loads of views. But I was just wondering, yeah. does anyone think, oh, this terrain looks, it could pitch at any time and then let's do it and get on the GoPro. Oh, I certainly don't hope that. I hope that's the case. When I'm skiing, even if I'm out filming or if like I know it's going to be a cool clip for the internet, I really try to forget all about, uh, like, forget about all of that before I drop in, and just like, always kind of check back with myself. It's like, is this something I want to ski? Would I do this without cameras on this day? And if the answer is no, then definitely like take a long step back and reevaluate. But I can't speak for anyone else than myself. I know there's definitely a trend of people like just sending it off wind lips and stuff doing like triple even quadruple backflips and like let's land on their backs in pow i'm sure it's really fun uh i really hope they do it for themselves and not for the internet but i'm coming i'm speaking from like sort of a privileged position too with like so many years in the game like kind of a name for myself where people i know people are gonna like watch what i'm putting out uh even if they have to wait for it if i was like this young up-and-coming guy with only a social media presence to my name and, and no like real name, no legacy, then maybe I would do that kind of stuff too. And just be like out there looking for the next viral clip. And I can't blame them. It's instant gratification. It's how we're hardwired to, uh, to do things.
a big media name in skiing with who's a friend of yours, Nikolai Sherma, he's is actually coming on the show soon. What's his operation like? Is it pretty similar to other people's? Because he seems to be the biggest name suddenly on the YouTube side. Yeah, I mean, I really admire Nikolai for how how he has such a like a good plan with everything that he does. Like you can tell he's like he's got a really good head on his shoulders. He knows the business side so well of the skiing and he's like really you can tell he's really put in work to understand the the social media aspect and what hits me with him is that he does things very with a lot of intent first time i met him he was like a, a no nobody in the skiing world he just came to chamonix like super happy stoked norwegian guy and uh we met through some common friends and we went skiing together and it was like got along really well and he kind of told me like he wanted to become a ski professional like a professional skier and i was like that's super cool and uh you can tell from then that his plan was just to like blow up on the internet and take it take that route because he hadn't done competitions he didn't have like any ins with people in the industry back then so he had a plan and he just like executed it and he does it the same way now like he'll plan ahead like at least a year and and does these projects and look how far that's taken him now he has like proper backing from sponsors that give him a huge film budget he has enough to like bring a filmer along all winter and uh just his work ethics is on another planet compared to 99% of all the skiers in the industry and it's funny too like we did this ski tour uh ski movie tour together this fall and we had a talk about it how he'll meet other pros people that have been in the industry for for ages but have never really made it that far to be like famous youtubers or huge on instagrams they're great skiers but they don't they're just lacking that will to like really look at it as a job and produce stuff and make sure things happen and he'll talk to them in like in the fall and it's like oh so what's your plan this winter and a pretty standard reply is that you know i'm just going to kind of take it as it comes see what happens and with that mindset things aren't just going to happen unless you're like a huge big name where people are just going to throw money at you and filmers and cameras you have to kind of look ahead plan and then execute and I'm still struggling with this to this day. Like sometimes I feel like I'm all out of ideas. I don't have any good stories to tell. And the in September, October, I'll be like, ah, oh, but I'll figure something out. And then November, December comes around and you're just like, I got to like put together pitches. I got to like find something to do. So the season just doesn't happen without me like doing anything. So yeah, that's that's where Nikolai stands out. I think when you're doing a trip is it like a, a sponsor will say to you okay here's a, you know a budget for one specific trip or is it like here's a budget for a winter do as many trips as you can within that or does it just vary for myself it's been i've been lucky enough to like work closely together with my sponsors for so long that when they enter a partnership with me they kind of know what they're gonna get or they know they're going to get something good out of it. Because if I just get to ski and bring filmers and photographers along, it, I'm going to produce stuff. Uh, so I usually try not to 
ask for specific trip money like that because you never know if it's going to be a success or not. And the worst, the last thing I want to do is having to put something together that I'm not stoked on uh, just to like get that budget for the flight tickets or whatever. So the way I've worked it out is worked it out is that I usually I get paid a retainer, a quarterly retainer for my skiing just to be like on the team. And I try to budget every trip myself from that money and save a little bit for, for the future and for my private life living, obviously. So I'll be usually like try to, that's, I found living in the van and just doing van road trips in, in Norway is like the most cost effective way because I can just spend a long time on the road and live pretty cheap and just put it to, to good use instead of having to like go on film trips everywhere and blow so much on flight tickets and hotels and yeah the van size really interesting because do you still spend most of your winter in chamonix and then go in the summer around europe surfing is that correct mm-hmm. no that was more a few years ago i did like a few seasons a few winters in Cham, but i never lived in my van there it's not super van friendly in my opinion I would usually rent an apartment and then just stay in the in the area and take the van on like weekend trips or short trips to wherever the snow is the best. But once you're in Sham, it's pretty hard to leave that valley. Like you usually end up just ski there. But then we would always go to northern Norway in the spring as soon as Chamonix got like a little too summery. Like you can ski down there until June. And you can ski amazing, like big mountain steep skiing all the way into July, really, if you want to get up like super high. But it also comes with a lot less snow in the valley, like hard to get back from the like, huge days, like huge missions and pretty hard to document that too. So like in end of April, we'd usually like drive all the way up to Norway and spend a few weeks up there. But then COVID winter came and uh, we stayed in Sweden all winter and then that was the year we we're going to do Norway, um, like a full season in Norway, but we couldn't exit the, couldn't get across the border. So we did that two years ago and, uh, both me and Sophia, my wife loved it. So we're like, all of a sudden we're in these amazing mountains, lines everywhere and a 10th of the crowds of the Alps. Um, so yeah, we did, did that schedule two the last two years. So we'd live in the van for four to five months and just follow the snow, follow the storms. You usually start like Southern Norway this time of the year. We're actually going there next week. And then you ski epic tree skiing, pillows, really fun, low, lower terrain where it just snows all day, but like Japan. And then you just follow the light as it gets daylight hours. You just follow it all the way up to the polar circle and end up there in like end of May that's that's a typical season so i think uh that's the program that i've been like really into the last few years do you find it quite destabilizing constantly moving about in search of the best snow because there's been a lot of research into the digital nomads you know people who work from home and then they travel a lot but actually after a while they get pretty burnt out because they miss that community that grinding Mm. in one place how do you sort of combat that yeah no i definitely struggle with that You'd look at my Instagram feed and be like, oh, this guy loves traveling. But to be honest, like, I really, I don't love it so much. I really like being, uh, like, as you say, within the same community for an extended period of time. And 
what I do really miss is having like a good base where <laughs> a place where my all my things are. <laughs> Because right now they're every like I have an apartment in Stockholm, but we've been renting it out for the past like seven years. So all of my stuff, all my personal belongings, except my ski equipment, is either in the st storage room in the apartment building I live, or it's like spread out in various like some is with at my dad's summer house or whatever, and then some is in the van. And you just never know where your things are. And you have to have so many things to ski, surf, go on camping trips. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, every time we go to that storage room, which I have to do that this weekend to pack the van, I go in there and it's just this wave of panic hits me because it's just <laughs> so much stuff. And you're like, every year we're like, oh, we got to go through all this stuff. Like, we can probably sell half of it. But then you realize, no, you can't. Like, you have to own this many surfboards or that many jackets or backpacks or stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. I do miss it. Yeah. But that's also why we started doing seasons in Chamonix. Like I spent so many years on the contest circuit, traveling constantly, like being on a new flight every weekend or every week to go to a new contest in a very similar ski town with similar people. <laughs> and you just do that every winter. So I got pretty burnt out with traveling. So that's why we started doing like full winters in Chamonix, just because I was looking for a long time for a place where I could ski trees, I could ride lifts, I could ski tour, I can even go climbing if I wanted to, I can ride big mountains. And that place ticks all most of those boxes, but then it doesn't tick the, the, the most important one, which is surfing. So then we uh, realized Norway has all that stuff, not as good lift skiing resort but um they have all the all the cool mountains all the good skiing a lot of snow friendly people and surfing so uh i don't feel like we're traveling as much anymore now that we live in the van because we have it all with us all the time and uh i have starting to like kind of find good communities throughout the mountain towns in norway too like a lot of like-minded people so we we try to stay in one place for a few weeks at a time and then move on so it's a good balance but i'm, I'm definitely looking it's if it's one thing i'm looking forward to retiring from skiing it's gonna be like settling down in a home somewhere like a house where i can like set up or i can have some order know where my things are <laughs> set up a music studio or something i don't know you mentioned your wife sophia there and you two are very much a team i wanted to ask how you balance your sort of unrelenting love and passion for skiing, but also been in a very healthy relationship. Because I was speaking to an acquaintance who lives in Chamonix, and she was saying that it's so hard to find someone in Chamonix, for example. And like the guides are the worst, because the guides are so in love with the mountains that you're always going to play second fiddle to them. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I know. You better ask her. I don't know. She, uh... yeah, a lot of people have asked us. I think... What saved our relationship, looking back, is that the first six or seven years or so of the of our relationship, I was traveling uh, skiing. I was traveling competing, but she was in school. So we'd have these like terrible winters away from each other. We were away from each other for way too long. We had this like six-week rule that I had to like 
come back home at least for a weekend. <laughs> and it was like, we were definitely struggling for a while. And it kind of definitely uh, sucked a little bit. So once she finished school and she could finally like start traveling with me, being together full time felt like really good. And it still, still does. And then it's definitely tough in the winters where your work doesn't end when you go home from skiing. You come home and you got to log, log footage and you have to put something out on the Instagram uh, and you got to start planning for the next day. And the way big mountain off-piste skiing works is that it never happens like one day on, one day off. It, it comes in like in little bursts where you have like three days of good snow and weather. So you have to like fully capitalize on that. Uh, and those three days will be skiing, talking about skiing, planning skiing, like constantly 24 seven, which definitely drives her a little more mad than me. Like <laughs> I have to like know when I definitely have to like, I figured out like finally when to like shut up about it, like not mention something that I just thought of for tomorrow and be like, maybe not the time right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely a little more obsessive with these kind of things than she she is. I get like, when I get sucked into something, I I go like, it, it's any everything that consumes my mind. That's also why we take pretty long breaks from skiing too. Like I know a lot of guys that that will ski until like May, and then they'll go skiing in the summer, and then they'll go ski glaciers in in the fall. And that's more of a personal thing. Like I think I would get pretty burnt out from skiing if I did that. I love it, but at the same time, it is, it feels a lot like a job sometimes. So sometimes in like May, it's nice to take, to know that I'll have like six months where I'm just gonna, the only skiing I'm gonna really occupy my mind with is editing my footage for the winter, like plan ski tours or ski movie tours. But I'm also just gonna be like a normal guy with normal friends, live in a city. <laughs> Speaking of footage, you, your recent documentary, Walk the Walk, came out and it was kind of, amongst epic footage, it was kind of to display that you don't need big helicopters. If you have the ski touring kit, you can access some pretty cool lines. You must right. be pretty happy with the reception that you got from it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, uh, it, was, uh, it was a tricky one to make because we didn't really, it was definitely one of those projects that was, we had sort of a loose plan. Uh, and a short list to make to have like a better story arc. I'm still like not entirely happy with the storytelling part of it. It kind of feels for me like it was a bit of an afterthought, if you know what I mean. But yeah, something good came out of it and uh, people have been stoked on it. It's always been like the last few years at least, it's, I've had this like uh, conflicting idea or conflicting thoughts about heli skiing and sled driven skiing like it's it's beautiful to watch the footage coming out of alaska and from like people with uh, sleds in uh, canada and stuff but at the same time it's hard to relate to it uh for me because i don't have access to that kind of skiing i can blow my whole season's budget on one heli trip absolutely <laughs> people do that but I definitely see my role as a skier and an influencer because that's what you are nowadays as someone who 
can inspire people to go do what we do. And I want to inspire what I want to like show people stuff that they maybe they can't relate to the skiing part of it, but they can relate to the concept of what we're doing. And with enough, like if, if there's a will, they're going to find a way to, to walk up one of those mountains eventually and ski it. Um, and you can do like anyone with a pair of legs can do that, but not anyone can just go on a heli trip unless they save for, for years and they get like a few days. Plus the reality is you're never going to be able to ski the stuff that you see in the movies. Cause if you go on a, on a guided heli trip, you're going to be flying into some amazing terrain, but then you're going to be skiing next to it. Like the, the guides in North America are so very reluctant to put tourists on, on top of steep spine lines. But if you can work your way up there, you can definitely go ski whatever you want. If you, uh, if you have a pair of skins and ski training equipment. No, it's, a, it's such a refreshing message, certainly from a consumer point of view. Not all of us can see the same lines as you, but you can get up there at least. Yeah. You know, you could choose your own lines. Because it is quite de rigueur almost for top skiers to say, oh, I don't heli ski anymore. Yeah. For environmental reasons. And there's been a bit of kickback because it's a bit like, well, mate, come on. Not, not all of us can heli ski anyway. But then mm -hmm. you're kind of coming at this fresh angle of, hey, just with some real horsepower and a pair of legs, you can get your way to the top of that and you can Absolutely. ski down whatever you want. And yeah, the reason too, I fell, fell in love with ski touring is that it adds this whole other dimension to a day in the mountains. Like you're not counting the, the second spent skiing downhill as like the one and only objective. You get to like go for a beautiful walk with your friends and see some amazing vistas and yeah just it's the whole package really and looking back at your tracks on a big mountain after skiing down it is always like really satisfying you're like i walked all the way up there in the beginning it feels impossible like you're like that's way too far it's too much of a walk but then you just like put your head down and start walking and time flies are you ever like exhausted when you get to the top so like, does it actually ever impact your skiing on the way down? If you look, the amount of kick turns you've had to do to get up there. <laughs> then I was like, man, that's a lot of lactic acid by the time you start heading down. For sure. You definitely, I mean, obviously you're not going to feel as fresh as if you just like stepped out of a ski lodge breakfast buffet and jumped into a heli, obviously. And there's obviously also some, there's always a compromise too if you're like picking lighter gear, like lighter ski boots and lighter skin or skis and uh, like little pin bindings. You're not going to send it as hard as if you had like your Alpine racing setup. So there's a balance to be found there. And there's, but I also find how it's almost like you have two tanks, you know, you have one for walking and then one for skiing. And you usually like the skiing. The leg, you get tired in a different way from walking. Then when then you kick into your bindings and you drop into a line, it's like adrenaline takes over and you have that like responsive, like muscle strength. It's like really aggressive, explosive strength versus like the slow walk up. And I usually don't like think about it until I get down, like in the parking lot after a day. Then that's when you're like, oh, like, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't, it probably post, wasn't the, the turns I made or the cliffs I jumped that made me tired. It was the walk for sure. 
you posted an outrageous clip on Instagram and it was captioned New Year's resolution 2024, put myself in fewer situations like this. And it's you sending this line and then triggering a big avalanche, but then riding it out. Could you tell us the backstory behind that one? Sure. Yeah. It's always tricky to like find a good excuse to post that kind of footage. Like, because when it happens, it always feels kind of like a like a, a failed day in a way. You're like, you didn't get the clip you wanted. The clips of big avalanches chasing skiers are amazing to look at. They're super cool, but they're obviously scary. And there's like, for someone who wasn't there that day, it looks like a total death wish, you know? Like, what are you doing? Uh, at the same time, you're like, I'm not going to let that clip just sit on a hard drive somewhere. I want people to see it. There's always that little look at me guy inside anyone that got, gets footage like that. So you got to like find a way to show that stuff and communicate that you're not like glamorizing avalanches, but this happened. And that was like on, that was on a day that we've had like a lot of discussions internally, me and my friends and Sophia and everyone who was there, like if we should really like, if there's a way to communicate what we thought about that day and how we approached it without making it sound like we're totally careless, reckless, uh, because there was a high avi danger that day. We had, uh, we had had like a period of freezing, freeze thaw conditions and like pretty solid ice layer. And then we got like 20 CMs of fresh snow on top of it with some wind. Uh, so anything like big, and when I say big, I, I'm talking like lines where a slide won't stop for five minutes where it just goes down an entire mountainside off the big cliffs and stuff. The kind of terrain that we love skiing or I love skiing when, when I know it's stable, all that kind of stuff was out of the question, but we still wanted to go ride something. Um, so we walked up to this zone that's just above tree line. We know it's all like very limited exposure, short pitches, no terrain traps, like big dips basically where snow can pile up and get really deep and most of the faces around that zone were like pretty clean without many features but i had like this one line that i really wanted to hit because it had like a really nice diving board nose on it that you can send it off pretty big big landing and so this is where it gets controversial we all kind of knew the snow wasn't going to stick to that face and it probably would only have like one line on each face because there wouldn't be much snow left after the first guy went. Uh, and this is the thing. We were a huge crew. Um, some of us were, we had at least one certified mountain guide with us. He came out for a walk just as a friend. And I even told him like before I went for it, like, I'm going to go up and ski that. And he's like, it's going to slide. I'm like, yeah, it's probably true but I have a line and I'm just going to point it. And he knows me. He knows my limits. He, know my he knows my capabilities. So he was like, yeah, no, cool. I'll watch, you know. And we had people above, a, above us that could come really quick if something happened. The, the filmers and like the, the rest of the crew were hanging out on a, at a spot where they were totally safe from the avalanche. So um, I figured like, what the hell? I'll drop in and see what happens. And if anything goes, I'll just straight line out of there. And that's a personal risk tolerance, like ice key stuff like that. When I know it's clean, when I know I'm not going to get sent off like this terminal cliff, 
where I'll just like go speed is your friend. If something happens, I'll get out of there ASAP. And you can't really, you can kind of tell if you watch the footage closely that the nose where I'm about to jump off kind of cleaves the snow in a way. So I knew that was going to stay cool, like stay untracked or untouched by the Abbey. So as soon as, as soon as it went, I just like immediately pointed it for that one nose and like, that's going to stay clean. I'm going to see my takeoff the whole way. Um, but yeah, it looks, it looks very dramatic for sure. So as we come to a close, all I want you to do is diagnose and advise me. So as we were speaking before, I am relatively new to skiing. Skied as a kid and then last year did the season. And then this year exclusively stayed in, in the resort, a bit of touring and a bit of walking up, just like 15 minutes of boot hacking to get to some fresh lines. Slack country. What should yeah. I, yeah, what, what should I do in the next five years and where should I go? Well, you should take an AVI class. <laughs> That's in March, four yeah, days. Great. Yeah. yeah, nice. I think that's, especially after all this talk about Avalanche, like we, anyone that I go ski with in these kind of, in this kind of mountain, these terrain, uh, they have all have some rudimentary or more like in-depth Avalanche training where they know what to do if something goes wrong and they know how to read the snowpack. They know how to, that comes with experience to spend enough time in snow, you'll start developing a sixth sixth sense of what the snow's doing and like how to look at something and but yeah i can't really stress that enough it's worth it's really fun and interesting to learn about snow and how it bonds and what happens with wind all that that regular practice with your avalanche gear but uh where should you go skiing um i mean the alps is the alps are amazing for 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 what you uh describe the slack countries touring where you just like take a lift up uh you get well uh well versed in uh using fat map or other apps that kind of track and collect so much data that you can use and plan your ski tours it seems like overwhelming to just walk out into the backcountry but once you have like the basic style where you know what where to go and where to kind of avoid obvious beginner mistakes like ski touring right below massive faces or just spending time in in bad spots but safety wise then i love going on fat map and also strava and look at the heat maps of the areas it's like if you're not completely sure where to go in, in like this in a big valley or coming out like from a from a creek and like coming up into the alpine and you're not really sure like the best way up maybe there's no track for you on a good day then you're stoked but then you can use those like resources like the heat maps and stuff to like okay so where do people usually go here and you can just kind of follow that that's what i always do if i'm somewhere new and i'm not sure maybe it's dark maybe you start early in the morning or, or bad weather and you're like where the hell does the trail go you can just like look up strava heat maps and you're like oh shit yeah it's totally blue right here like everyone's walked this way um so you just follow that so you don't end up in some dumb place uh anywhere other than the alps (laughs) like i say uh a japan trip i'm I'm very partial to japan i wouldn't bother with north america too much to be honest like they have amazing skiing but also like a lot of skiers uh so a lot of the the more user-friendly stuff has so much traffic on it 
kind of like hard to find the the solitude that I like. Definitely recommend uh, going to if you're gonna do North America, I would say go to the Powder Highway in uh, Interior BC. Drive that around uh, the classic resorts like Banff and Baker and yeah, uh, Revelstoke, obviously. But then definitely take a few days and go into Rogers Pass and uh, go ski touring there. It's amazing pillow skiing in the trees. And if you do get up in the high alpine, it's insane. And there's a lot of good resources on that area too to find what you're looking for. But yeah, my heart beats for Norway, northern Norway in the spring. Uh, Lingen Alps, Lofoten, Senja. It just doesn't get any better than that. You get to ski like... Eh, they have something for every level and you're skiing with like a backdrop of fjords and uh, a sun that doesn't set, at least not in May. So barely sets, just dips below the horizon for a few hours. Yeah. I'm sold. I'm sold. Yes. No way it is, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. No, man, you're not going to be disappointed. It's uh, such an amazing uh, community of skiers up there too, like really friendly and you can always just uh, go into a ski shop and, and ask people where to go and just find people on the mountain. Yeah, it's amazing. So that's what I'll be doing in the next five years. What what will you be doing certainly in the next 12 months? Next 12 months, uh, well, God, I don't know. I'm going to be skiing as hard as I can until end of April. I'm actually not going to ski for too long this winter. I'm going to ski until end of April. That's when I'm finishing up my projects. We have uh, two film projects for the fall, uh, one shorter film and one bigger one. Uh, that I'm doing together with uh, Ma Mag Magnus Granier, Ski Man Guy. Uh, that's going to be super cool. We're going to take him out on some big mountain peaks in Norway. He's going to experience like being on a massive face for his first time. We're going to fly some FPV drones up there, which is really cool. And uh, then I'm going to go surfing in uh, Central America in May, which I'm looking forward to a lot. And then summer, probably just going to spend in the studio editing films and uh obviously hanging out with friends and most likely uh do the ski movie tour schedule this next fall it's kind of like on repeat same winter same summer uh <laughs> still loving it and uh, hopefully i'm gonna do that for the next at least five years amazing and if people want to keep up to date with all of that where would be the best place to find you well i'm most active on instagram uh try to post there as much as possible and as relevant footage as possible it's gonna be like kind of what i'm doing day-to-day -day basis and uh if you want to see more well more polished productions it's my youtube so on instagram Jakob bester and youtube is uh youtube.com slash ski and we'll link all of them in the description Jakob, thank you very much for coming on the show you've been an absolute treat thank you joe it's been great talking to you and uh have a great winter Thank you.